Hello, everybody, and welcome into this episode number 21 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, why did God command Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? So I do want to point you to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Every day we post the transcript of the show there, as long as well as some uh, quotes and any kind of uh, helpful links and all that kind of good stuff. If you've got a question that you want to be included on an upcoming daily episode of the podcast, just leave it as a comment on any one of the posts on the website. I'll see it and I'll get it and add it to our question list. I do want to invite you to share the show with your friends on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, all that kind of good stuff. We are uh, focused on the goal of getting people to read the Word of God daily. And maybe one of the best ways to do that is to listen to the reading of the Word of God daily, because faith comes by hearing. So it's a very valid way to have Scripture intake in your life. And that's what we do every day. Every day we read four chapters of the Bible and we comment on one of those chapters. So the show, the bulk of the podcast, is the Word of God. And uh, there's a little bit of extra commentary from me thrown in. But the good stuff is in the Word of God. So share it with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes. That would be awesome. Today marks three straight weeks of doing daily episodes of the Bible. So we're three weeks, 21 episodes in um, I've been literally podcasting off and on since early 2005 and have never in my life ever tackled a daily podcast. It's an interesting experience to be sure. Every episode takes an average, I don't know, around two and a half hours from start to finish. And if you're curious, I'll give you a kind of a quick rundown of sort of what that looks like to record and produce your own podcast. And here it is. Step one in the Bible reading podcast is to read over the day's scripture at some point early in the day. Usually when I record, it's the night before the episode releases. So right now, today is January 21st. It's 12.35 a.m. I anticipate having the podcast done and scheduled for post in about, I don't know, a little over an hour or so. But every night I usually begin it uh, after all the kids and, Jan and my wife Janet has gone to bed. And I'm usually done somewhere between 1 and 2 a.m., sometimes a little later than that. But earlier in the day, I've got to read through the scriptures and uh, think about what chapter of the four chapters we're focusing on should be uh, the, uh, the one we're going to really focus our attention on for the show and what Bible questions should we tackle? So that's step number one. Step number two is actually writing the episode out in manuscript form as, you know, kind of a blog post and doing some research in commentaries and in books of godly teachers and writers and stuff. I primarily use the program uh, Logos for this step because I've heavily invested in it over the years and I can quickly find relevant to the passage information from, you know, people like uh, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, John Piper, David Platt, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, Martin Lloyd Jones. And, and honestly, hundreds of others. I love Logos, Logos. I've been a, I've been a customer of Logos ever since I've been podcasting. So maybe actually before then, 2003 or so. Uh, and every year I add a few more books to the collection and I find it incredibly helpful for this type of research. All right. Step number three. 
Using the unpublished blog post as a rough draft, I record the show in Audacity, which is a free, powerful, and maybe a little bit complicated audio editor and recorder. Step number four. After recording the show, I go through the recording and edit it. I need to remove every cough and sniffle, every loud intake of breath, every time I pause to take a drink or my chair creaks. You hear that? I got a squeaky chair. I got to get rid of all of those. And worst of all, every time I misspeak or get something out of order and have to restart, that means I get to look at 25 to 40 minutes worth of audio waveforms. Uh, and if you're on the website, you can see a screenshot of sort of what that looks like. And I have to pull out all the mistakes and all the all the ridiculous things I might do. And I guarantee you in any given episode, I'm going to I'm gonna cough, I'm going to sneeze, I'm going to make some sort of noise, I'm going to drink my soda about 20 times, and it's a bit of a mess to edit. And I'm always afraid I'm going to miss some terrible thing and you guys are going to get to hear me sneezing or um, something worse than that. Hopefully that hasn't come through yet. But if it has, hey, it's a one-man operation and the one man is severely flawed. Step number five. After editing the show in Audacity, I export it as a large WAV file and then upload it to a service called Auphonic, which is an audio uh, cleanup service. Auphonic polishes up the audio, makes it sound a little better, and that process usually takes about 20 minutes because if you're a nerd, you know that WAV files can be kind of big. After that, I download the completed podcast audio file as a 96 kilobits per second MP3 file, and that takes me to the final step. The final step is probably my least favorite step at all, because I get to upload the completed MP3 to BibleReadingPodcast.com. I insert it into the blog post with my podcast host, Libsyn, and they have a plug-in. The plug-in works fine, but I have to manually fill out all the details about the show by hand. The name of the show, the subtitle, the show number, the show season, the description, um, who's in the show, all keywords, and uh, I have to put a thumbnail graphic and all of that kind of good stuff. And when I'm done with that, I've got to choose when to publish the episode. And usually I publish it at 3.30 in the morning Pacific time. So all of our friends on the East Coast, when they wake up, they can have it at 6.30 a.m. their time. And that's more or less how you make a podcast. Okay, wake up. All of you that fell asleep during that and you don't care about how to make a podcast, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about that a lot. It's time to get to the meat of the show. And that is our main Bible question of the day. Why in the world did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? And before we discuss it, let's actually read about it. This is Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. 
In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father? And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, Here I am. Then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, The Lord Will Provide, or Jehovah Jireh. So today it is said, It will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men, and they got up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham settled in Beersheba. Now after these things Abraham was told, Milcah also has borne sons to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, his brother Booz, Kimuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hatso, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maaka. So, very strange and troubling situation here. As we've read, if you've been following along with the podcast the last few days, this episode of of God providing Isaac has been building for years, years, decades. Abraham and Sarai cried out to God for a son. And God said, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. But it took years and years and years. And finally, God provided. And then at some point shortly after that, God says, Abraham, I want you to take the son that I provided and sacrifice him. And and it blows our mind when we think about, why would you want me to do that, God? It's just such an incredible situation. So how do we answer the question, why does God do this? So at the beginning of an answer to this difficult question, I'd like to point us all the way in the New Testament to the very end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. In that chapter, Jesus has been crucified on the cross. He died. He was buried. 
Three days later, he has risen from the dead, but most of his disciples are not aware of that yet. And two of them, a guy named Cleopas and another guy, they're walking on a road called Emmaus, and they're talking about this situation. And they're depressed because they had great hope for Jesus, and they didn't expect him to die. And all of a sudden, the resurrected Jesus comes up upon these two guys talking about him. And Jesus asks them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And let's let Luke pick up the rest of the story in Luke chapter 24. So they said to him, the things we're talking about, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So this is our big clue, number one that the Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus. And and if you're quite an astute person in the Bible right now, you're saying, wait a minute, Moses comes after Abraham, so he can't be talking about this situation. Well, when Jesus says, beginning with Moses, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, that were compiled or edited and much of it written by Moses. And so Jesus is saying, essentially, beginning with Genesis He interpreted for them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Because the fact of the matter is, the entire Bible points to Jesus. This passage here in particular, Genesis chapter 22, is a foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus. Consider all the parallels between Isaac's almost sacrifice and Jesus's actual sacrifice. And I'm going to give you a list here, courtesy of the website gotquestions.org, which is linked in our uh, our blog post on BibleReadingPodcast.com. The Old Testament story of Abraham is the basis of the New Testament teaching of the atonement, the sacrificial offering of the Lord Jesus on the cross for the sin of mankind. Jesus said many centuries later, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. John 8.56 Here's some parallels between the two biblical accounts. Verse 2 says, Take your son, your only son Isaac. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Verse 2 says, Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice Isaac there. It is believed that this is the area where the city of Jerusalem was built many years later, where Jesus was crucified outside its city's city walls. Verse 2 says, Sacrifice Isaac there is a burnt offering. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
Verse 6 says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And John 19 verse 17 refers to Jesus carrying his cross to the place of crucifixion. Verse 7 in Genesis says, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And in John one twenty one, John, when he saw John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaac, the son, acted in obedience to his father in becoming the sacrifice. We see that in John, in verse 9. And Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, 39, My father, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Do you see the parallels there between Isaac and Jesus? Picture young Isaac trudging up the hill of Moriah, heading towards the sacrifice with a heavy weight of wood strapped to his back and weighing him down. And then hundreds of years later, Jesus, the only begotten son of God, trudging up a similar hill, maybe the exact same hill, with the wood of the cross strapped to his back, heading to his own sacrifice. In both cases, the father is leading the son to his death, and in both cases, the son obediently follows. Would Abraham have gone through this and actually killed his son? It certainly appears so, but I do want you to remember that Abraham at the beginning of chapter 22 confidently confidently told his servants at the bottom of the mountain that he and Isaac would return. Also recall that Abraham in faith told Isaac his son that God himself would provide the sacrifice. I don't think Abraham was tricking Isaac. I believe he was trusting in God to spare Isaac or maybe even to raise Isaac from the dead. Because Hebrews eleven nineteen says, Abraham considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. So the almost sacrifice of Isaac is a picture to us of the very real sacrifice of Jesus. Our astonishment and even offense at the seeming audacity of God to grant Abraham a child and then shortly after demand his sacrifice shows to us the worth of Isaac and the worth of a child and the depth of a father's love. We, those of us who are parents, and even if you're not a parent, you can probably sympathize with Abraham on a deep level and you can begin to fathom the cost of giving up a child. And that is the precise point of this passage, that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, showed Abraham's level of trust in God. It showed his deepest feelings towards God. Likewise, God's willingness to sacrifice his one and only begotten son shows us the depth of feelings that he has towards his people. The beautiful exchange that happens atop Mount Moriah when the ram is substituted for the beloved Isaac looks forward to an even more beautiful exchange that will happen in the future when we are the ones scheduled to be sacrificed on the cross for our sins, and deservedly so, but God rescues us through his son at the last minute, and he is sacrificed in our place. Jesus is the sacrificial ram that saves the life of us in the same way that the ram caught in the thicket hundreds of years before gave his life for the life of Isaac. 
Now let me close this section with uh, some, some really great thoughts from a writer named Glenn Scrivener from the Gospel Coalition website. So the whole episode concludes, Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Genesis twenty-two fourteen. Notice, says Glenn, the future tense, God will provide. What will he provide? The Lamb of God, the offspring of Abraham, the beloved Son, the hope of the world. One day on that very mountain, God would provide the ultimate atonement, and many knew it. For centuries afterward, they would point to that hill and say, the true sacrifice is coming, and that's where he'll be provided. God didn't ask Abraham to go through with the sacrifice, but one dark Friday, God would provide. The beloved son of the father would walk willingly up that hill, carrying the wood on his back, and there he would be slain to save and bless the world. If we attempt to read the Bible primarily as a rule book, it crumbles between our fingers. With such a mindset, Genesis 22 is a scandal and a barrier to faith, but... When the Bible is read as intended, we see it as a testimony to Jesus. Suddenly, we realize that all the Bible and all the believers in every age are fixed on the one truth that towers above all the others. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. So if you've got any feedback on that answer, as always, you can leave it as a comment at BibleReadingPodcast.com. That gets us to Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the heads of the province who stayed in Jerusalem, but in the villages of Judah, each lived on his own property in their towns. The Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants, while some of the descendants of Judah and Benjamin settled in Jerusalem. Judah's descendants. Athaiah, son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of Perez's descendants, and Maasai, son of Baruch, son of Kolhatza, son of Hazaiah, son of Adiah, son of Jalarib, son of Zechariah, a descendant of the Shilonite. The total number of Perez's descendants who settled in Jerusalem was 468 capable men. These were Benjamin's descendants. Salu, son of Meshulam, son of Jaed, son of Padiah, son of Coliah, son of Maasiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, and after him Gabai and Salai, 928. Joel, son of Zikri, was the officer over them, and Judah, son of Hasanua, was second in command over the city. The priests... Jediah, son of Jalarib, Jachin, Sariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahitub, the chief official of God's temple, and their relatives who did work at the temple, Adiah, son of Jeroham, son of Palaliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Malkajai, and his relatives, the heads of the families, Amashai, son of Azarel, son of Achsai, son of Meshelamath, son of Immer, and their relatives, capable men, 128. Zabdiel, son of Hagodalim, was their chief. The Levites, 
Shemaiah, son of Hashem, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Butni, and Shebatai and Jotzebed from the heads of the Levites, who supervised their work outside the house of God. Mataniah, son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, the one who began the thanksgiving and prayer. Bakbukiah, second among his relatives, and Abda, son of Shamua, son of Galal, son of Jeduthun, all the Levites in the holy city, 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talmon, and their relatives who guarded the city gates. The rest of Israel, the priests and the Levites, were in all the villages of Judah, each on his own inherited property. The temple servants lived on Uphel, Ziha, and Gishpa, supervised the temple servants. The leader of the Levites in Jerusalem was Utsi, son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the descendants of Asaph, who were singers for the service of God's house. There was, in fact, a command of the king regarding them, and an ordinance regulating the singers' daily tasks. Pethahiah, son of Meshezabel, of the descendants of Zerah, son of Judah, was the king's agent in every matter concerning the people. As for the farming settlements with their fields, some of Judah's descendants lived in Kiriath Arba and Debon and their surrounding villages and Jacobzeel and its settlements, and Jeshua, Malada, Beth Pellet, Hatzar Shuel, and Beersheba and its surrounding villages, and Ziklag, Mekanah, and its surrounding villages, in Enriman, Zorah, Jarmuth, and Zanoah, and Adullam with their settlements, in Lachish with its fields, and Azekah and its surrounding villages. So they settled from Beersheba to the Hinnom Valley, Benjamin's descendants from Geba, Michmash, Ajah, and Bethel and its surrounding villages, Anatoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hatzor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Znebalit, Lod, and Ono in Craftsman's Valley. Some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. Now, when I meet some of these people in heaven, I'm going to have some explaining to do about how I pronounce their names. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They bought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went to the temple and threw out all those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves.
The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna, son of, to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read, You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies? Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. At once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and say, and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origins, well, we're afraid of the crowd, because everyone considers John to be a prophet. So they answered Jesus, uh, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, My son, go work in the vineyard today. The son answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered. But he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? And they said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will they do? What will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. 
Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. Acts chapter 21 verse 1. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight for Kos the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except... The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified in God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So, what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we've written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, 
from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law in this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred up, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commanders and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander approached, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some were another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mass of people followed, yelling, "'Get rid of him!' As he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, Am I allowed to say something to you? He replied, Oh, you know how to speak Greek. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. After he had given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. And tomorrow we'll find out what he says. Well, I hope the passages today were encouraging to you. Whether you feel like they were or not, I know for both of us they were edifying for our spirit man and that they built us up and they pointed us to Jesus. And that's our goal. Thanks for listening today. 